I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog. What's up, everybody? Happy Friday. Basketball will be returning to us in a few hours, but we're not going to worry about that because if we do, we're all going to be depressed. It's Friday. We need to be happy. As usual, I'm joined by my compadre, Mr. Will Weir. But we're also joined by a guest, a guy whose basketball knowledge far exceeds our own, a guy who lives on Twitter. I'm, I think the cool kids call them good Twitter follows. I think people have said that to me, and I've been very impressed with it. So a good Twitter follow from Barstool Sports, Mr. Dan Greenberg. What's up, Greeny? What's up, guys? I, I don't know if I would say it's a good Twitter follow. I would say, you know, just as many people would probably argue against it. I would just say... If you're looking for like a cathartic real life reaction feed, that's pretty much how I live. It's, you know, I don't even know what I'm saying half the time. It's just <laughs> as I'm watching, as I'm feeling, it's whatever comes to my mind is somehow what ends up on my feed. I'm just a stream, stream of consciousness. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there are people who I know have probably muted me just because it's like, I don't, I don't care how many I tweet. It's just as it's coming out, I just have to get it out. Um, or else it's just going to be in my brain and I'm going to get, I'm going to go crazy. So that's pretty much my strategy. Man, now I sit there like dithering over a tweet for like 10 minutes before hitting send. Like I have yeah, to, you gotta just like, fire it off. You gotta just yeah. fire it off, you know? Just live with, live with the consequences afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so as I say, I don't really want to talk too much about the playoffs because we're all sad enough and I feel like it's time we start, <laughs> um, taking a more holistic approach to the way we discuss this team. As such, Greeny Man, give us your four most positive takeaways from the season. We'll start. Uh, four most positive takeaways. Um, no I think Rob is, I think, the biggest, right? I mean, he's the fact that he has sort of fulfilled the hype that we all had been hoping and wishing he would develop into. Now, he obviously still has his questions. Who knows about his health and all that? But I would say the consistent production of Rob and his opportunities is a huge plus. Um, I think the development of both Jays, I mean, Jalen had a career year across the board. His playmaking is getting better. He's adding new elements. And I think the same is true with Tatum. I think, you know, we're starting to see him figure out how to counter teams, treat him as a legit number one option, you know, trapping him on pick and rolls. So I think that progression has been great. And I think the fact that it looks like we've hit on two first round draft picks in Heath Smith and Pritchard. I mean, it's been a while since we've been able to say, okay, you know, we've hit on not just one, but two, one of which was a late first round pick, you know, given their, their roster construction and their cap situation, it's imperative that they start hitting on these first round picks. You need low cost, cheap rookie talent, rookie contract talent that can actually contribute and isn't just Carson Edwards who's taking up a roster spot, but doesn't ever play, you know, because they don't have the, the cap space or now the trade or now the draft picks to make trades to bring in impact players. So they need their impact players to come on cost controlled contracts. And I think Neesmith and Pritchard are showing that they could be two guys that, that do that. How do you feel about Romeo as an impact guy at the point? I just don't know. I just think we can't decide anything on Romeo, like on either <laughs> end of the spectrum, right? Like I can't say he's, he's a hit and I can't say, He's a draft miss because we've just never seen him, you know, and that's kind of hypocritical because like 
Aaron Neesmith has played, you know, the same, yeah. you know, 30 minutes on the season or whatever, but at least we're able to see him for a consistent stretch. I just, like, I know that Romeo can defend at an NBA level, which is important, but we're starting to see, if you just look around all these playoff series, if you're not an offensive threat, you literally cannot play. Like, that's just where the league is. I think if you look at someone like Jimmy Butler, he is so impactful as a playmaker and as a defender, but he's shooting 22% from the floor in their series, and they're down low too. Like, you just – you need to be – with all the attention that's coming with the two Js when they're on the floor, you can't have – and if you're, especially if you're going to play Tristan Thompson, you can't have more than one guy in your lineup that is not a threat to score the basketball. It's just – it clogs everything up. It makes it too hard for the scorers that are on the floor to get clean looks. Teams don't even have to respect Romeo as an offensive player. And as and for me, that like that makes me nervous because it takes away everything he gives you on the defensive end because if you can't play him, because he, you can't rely on him to come without the ball and finish at the rim, he's not a spot-up shooter. Like, what is he going to do for you offensively? Yeah, and you brought up a great point, you know, talking about comparing Romeo to Neesmith. And it has got me thinking as we're like starting to reflect as the season's, you know, as Adam mentioned, is coming to an end rapidly here. Uh, it starts to make me reflect a little bit like with Neesmith, he's been one of the joys for me the last half of the season, seeing from where he started at the very beginning to where he is now getting rotation minutes. And you can see, you know, the elements of his game. But you're right. Between Neesmith and Langford, have we really seen with our own two eyes, the two of them on the court that much different of time? And so I think, you know, Neesmith is still more of a question mark than we than we might lead to believe just because it is still, you know, a very small sample size. So I'm just curious to know from Neesmith, what are you projecting as you look into the future? Use your crystal ball if you can to see what what take what you've seen from Neesmith and what you're hoping to see from him as we're starting to look more into next season at this point. I mean, I think next year he's a rotation wing player for you almost right away. I think the biggest difference in his season was as he started to play more, I was never really worried about his struggles shooting the ball because he's he's a rhythm shooter, and you can't expect a guy who gets inconsistent opportunity to like you know he's he's DMP'd for a month and then he's going to come in he's going to miss his first couple shots like that's that's fine, but the progression as an on ball defender and as a help defender is what makes me think like okay he can be a he can be a consistent rotational wing for you moving forward and if that you know, I don't think that, you know, he's not going to start by any means, but, you know, he can give you that first wing off the bench, depending on what happens with Fournier. Like, whatever role they were going to give Fournier, if if he forgot, you know, some reason doesn't resign, I feel comfortable giving that same role to Neesmith in his second year. You know, so, like, a guy where you can plug and play as a starter if someone's hurt or, you know, there's COVID, you know, whatever, and you can trust him, but immediately, like, He's a 25, 30-minute player off the bench for you right away, I think, based on what we've seen his development these last, you know, five, six weeks. Do you think his shot profile has been miscast? More, he's more operating more catch and shoot rather than movement? I don't know. It's weird because I feel like his – a lot of the times when I see him succeed, it's when you see, uh, you know, uh, Rob setting that high screen from him off ball and then he curls around and he takes that three at the top of the key. I feel like – that is, he has him in motion. I feel like his shot looks worse oftentimes when he's just like a spot up shooter. I don't know what it is. It's like, 
from the corners, he's okay. But from from the hash mark and from the above the break, it's like when he gets in a catch and shoot opportunity, it's like it's not ever really close. <laughs> but when he's like, when, when I want to use him like Doc used Ray Allen, you know what I mean? Like running off, run him off some pin downs, have him come and come in motion. So when he catches the ball, it's just right into his jump shot. Like don't even think about it. But it's the set. I don't know if it's how his form is. I just feel like the set shots are always like the really bad misses. Yeah. The air balls or the ones that hit like the side of the, you know, aren't even really close. The ones where he's like running off in action, I feel are, we're seeing him, you know, shoot at a better, you know, better clip. And Which to that point, in college, that's exactly where I was going to go with it, Adam. Yeah. Like, I feel like every clip I've seen of him leading up to the draft or kind of looking back to try and, you know, I don't think any of us here on this were, were watching a ton of Vanderbilt no, basketball. Like, I just you know what I mean? So, like, that's, but, that's my goal. Like, just, just show me the YouTube. And, and almost every time, every image I can think of right now is him coming off some type of action in motion. And we don't, you know, Brad does have that one call for him where you, he kind of gets at the top of yep. the key like that. And that is when he looks most comfortable. And that's something I hadn't necessarily thought of as much but you are totally spot on and, and you're right man some of those misses they they're like so they, like he gets his money's worth when they're misses yeah you know? like you'll airball his first one you're like oh geez like you were wide open on that catch and shoot and then he'll make like his like the one we're talking about coming off that high screen with rob and i just feel that it's like so much of the celtics offense for these young guys is like they get in the game they go right to the corner and they just stand there and they're like if Jalen or tatum or kemba drives Maybe they'll kick it out to me in the corner. It's like I always describe it as they're like the young freshmen who made varsity and who like don't want to make a mistake. So like when they get in the game and, they, and you pass it to them, they pass it right back. Or like they run to the corner and they just hope for a mm-hmm. kick out. Where his development is comes like, okay, you're getting more confident. You're getting more consistent run. Like now you can actually run stuff for him and then like see if he – can be consistent that way because that's why I think Hayward left because your your fourth third and fourth option on this team is go to the corner and hopefully someone kicks it out to you and that can't happen. Which leads us to number three and four of your most favorite, well, your most optimistic takes from the season, and then we'll continue to break down why it's been so bad. Okay, um, so what did I say for number three, I would say. Oh man. Um what it's I Slim Pickens. <laughs> no, it's Slim Pickens. If it's not the rookies and it's not the Jays. Well, I would say Rob Jays, rookies. I think you gave three. So I think we're on four. We're give three. Oh, yeah, we are on four. Oh, yeah, yeah, we gotta on. give you proper credit around here. That's okay. I'm just trying I mean, like you said, it's Slim Pickens. It was a year from hell. Um <laughs> I'm just trying to think. I don't even know. Is there are there four legitimate takeaways? I don't know. Like if we're gonna group the Jays together and the rookies together, I just I don't even know. Like maybe we'll settle at three. We can settle at three and just be like, yo, freeze, freeze, uh, freeze where we are. It's the lucky number. It's the magic number. Yeah. Well, I would say like I've been impressed with how Fourier has fit. There we go. You know, like, go. if he's That's able nice. to stay, I, I consider him like a Hayward light, where yeah. he's like he's a good facilitator. He's his ceiling obviously isn't what Gordon Hayward is, but their skill sets are similar in that you can, you know, play mate with him. He can initiate pick and roll. He's a great, you know, outside shooter. And he gives you that sort of mid-range game that Hayward had, which is so important. It's just like, maybe he doesn't stay. And then it's a, then it's a moot point. But I would say like once he came back from COVID and got his legs under him, I was impressed with how he seemed like 
they made a conscious effort, it felt like, to get him the ball and to get him, you know, his, his shots. And I thought he has slid into the system, you know, better than I maybe imagined, you know, when they first brought him in. Yeah, and I think Especially because he's had no practice time. So it's exactly. Like, yeah. And calling him a Hayward light, I think it's perfect. I think he's – and him not actually having that Hayward ceiling, I actually think in a weird way is a benefit because with Hayward, he knows he can do so much more. And you saw mm-hmm. when he was healthy, he went to Charlotte. He was borderline all-star, you know, certainly, yeah. you know, was a big reason that they were even in the play-in tournament despite getting hurt again, you know. But, like, with Fournier – He's not necessarily, he might not necessarily have that same mindset. Like, hey, I've been an all-star. I've been the number one option on a team that went to the second round. His team's got swept every year in the first round when he was the you know one or two option. So for him, being option three or option four, depending on the lineup, that actually works as a benefit. But you're right. I was going to suggest him as, as who might be number four, but it's, it's kind of a giant if that's hanging yeah. over the team because of what, what might or might not happen in the offseason. Right. And I think what's, what's interesting is like, what they were asking Hayward to do as a fourth option of like, okay, we'll split you with the second unit. You'll be a primary frame maker, but like you're not in the top three in the pecking order for a player of his caliber. Like, obviously that's not going to sit well, but for someone like Fournier where it's like, okay, you know, maybe he does want to be, you know, this number one or number two option on a bad team, but you just get the sense that he's more willing to fit this idea of that role on this roster because he's like, okay, I, I know I'm not better than either of the Jays. And it's like, as long as they can stagger their lineups and have him be a one or two option with the second unit, uh, I think he'll, you'll have a much better time keeping him happy in that role. The question now is, is like, what is his price? Like, are you going to pay 20 million for that? I don't know. I mean, it's, are you going to have a team like the Knicks that have tons of cap space that need a perimeter player? Like he's an unrestricted free agent. So unless he feels some sort of like loyalty to you because he got traded and he got COVID, you don't know what his market is going to be. And you don't know all it takes when you're an unrestricted free agent is one team to come in and say, we feel like you could be a missing piece. We have money to spend. Like you get to play in a big market. I just, I would just hope that he likes playing here. He likes the system. And well, that might have been my internet. <laughs> I don't know how much of that you just heard, but it could have been. Mine. We got up to likes the system. Yeah, it's gonna happen to all of us one time in this podcast. <laughs> so, um, I think for me, the biggest, uh, the biggest issue I had with all of this, with bringing in Evan Fournier, was Danny Ainge had gone on record saying, "I we want somebody that's going to be." acquired by the team and held for the long term. We don't want to be using the TPE on another flight risk. Mm-hmm. Paraphrasing, obviously, but that was definitely yeah. the, the the path that Ainge had walked everybody down uh, throughout the majority of the season. You get an option to go after someone like Aaron Gordon that to me was almost a perfect fit for what the team needed in terms of being able to add some more athleticism to the roster, being able to add some floor spacing and size. He goes down the Evan Fournier route and now we're in this kind of middle like purgatory like now we're back to the Haywood situation all over again in a week or two and we're like what's going to happen everyone's like well it could be another signing trade it could be another like you could end up with um another TPE and I'm like I went through that I lived that don't want to live that again that was that was emotional enough the first time around what was your take on when they actually acquired Fournier was you happy about it or was you like what are you doing yeah so it, it tells me it told me two things at the time right the first is 
maybe they got a little wink wink from him and his agent of like, listen, don't worry about it. Like as long as you guys come with a, with a market price, like allow us to come and see what the market is and then come back. And then that allows them to, you know, make that deal in confidence. And it only costs them, you know, second round picks, which at this point, like who cares about second round picks? The other end of that coin is the price for someone like Aaron Gordon was too much. So the Magic weren't going to just give you Aaron because he had more than one year left on his deal. They didn't have to trade him. You know, maybe that was going to cost you someone like Smart, and that just wasn't worth it for Ainge. And then you look at it like, okay, I have to use this TPE now on a potential guy that could walk, or I might not be able to use it at all. So I think – I mean, we don't, we'll never know the truth. We'll never know what it actually was. But I think when Ainge first said that, my guess is he was probably looking at players that weren't expiring, maybe someone like a Harrison Barnes or someone that had at least two years left. When those guys either didn't become available or the risk was real that it could go unused, but you also had the opportunity to get a player that fits a need with Fournier and you just have to take the risk. I would rather him do that and then use the remaining $10 million for a player this summer than do nothing, and now you run the risk of it expiring and you, like, you don't have Fournier either way. So while it's not ideal, I think it's, it's something where I would rather him roll the dice and take the risk and at least we get the player in the building and in with how we're doing things and maybe he just likes it. Or he ends up walking for nothing and you can do a, another sign and trade and get another TPE. <laughs> God, if we have to do more TPE content for yeah, another you know, year. Yeah, it's going to be like a never-ending TPE cycle. <laughs> Man, let, let me hurt my emotions, dude. I'm, I'm like, it's a bad breakup. I'm done with TPEs. I'm, they're, put, they're in a box to the left. Done so many player profiles of, of players that none ended up in Boston. In oh, 40 no, years, that's how it is. Like, that's just how it is. My whole life. My whole life before Al Horford, no free agent ever yeah, ended up in Boston exactly. anyway. So it's like, <laughs> no, it's a shock to me when they do get somebody. It's never a shock to me when we hear about how they've almost got someone. That's the normal. Yeah, I think ultimately when it comes to Fournier, you know, you nailed a bunch of the stuff that we can we can read the tea leaves from the outside of of what it meant. I mean, I think it might have been one of the last options that Danny Ainge really yeah. had to go down because Fournier always kind of fit in as a player. Like the player himself, I like but it's the it's the contract and everything else that goes along with, with what you do with it. And so I think Aaron Gordon, I think Vucevic, his teammates, were actually much more appealing. But then it got down to, was the price too high? Or do we even have enough value to make it worth their conversation? Looking at what they got, it, it depends on, you know, what our offers. I think it was, I think it might have even came out that they, you know, there was rumors that we were close or we were second place on Vucevic. But then you look at, you know, they, they might get a top six pick from the Bulls right. this year, the way that worked out. We didn't have anything close to like, right. even, and, the, and, even the potential of that. Yeah, and you're not going to include someone like Rob or Smart. So it's like adding 40 gave them the ability to improve the roster without giving up a core piece, and all it took was second-round picks. The, just the double-edged sword part of that is now we can leave for nothing because there's no guarantee. So it's like do you want to give up a young piece like Rob or Smart for maybe a better player that's locked in? Or would you rather bring in a player that fits next to those guys that addresses the need? You're just absorbing the risk that in three months you could be left with nothing. That's, that's the gamble. Don't you find it crazy, though, that they've 
shown a reluctance to move on from Marcus Smart, but re-signing Fournier is basically turning around and saying we're not going to be able to keep Smart past next season. See, I don't, I don't think that's true. I think they can keep him as long as they want to go into the luxury tax. You know, like they have. It's all just a matter of what Wick and the ownership group wants to pay for. If they believe that this was just a messed up, weird season with no practice and COVID and injuries and for whatever reason, like the core of this team is who they want to believe in, they can keep whoever they want. You know, like trade Tristan Thompson for a cheaper big if you want to free up money. I just think, you know, signing Fournier for me isn't a death wish for Marcus Smart, but it's not my money. You know, like yeah. trading Daniel Tice to get under the luxury tax so they wouldn't be a repeat offender. Well, now that you're not going to be a repeat offender, keep Marcus Smart and just start paying the luxury tax. Like, it seems pretty simple. But they have to make a decision because he's going to be a restricted free agent at the end of next season. So if they don't feel that, A, he's going to be part of their future, or B, that he's not going to stay long term, they have to get in front of it and they have to trade him this summer. So I think... I think he falls into that. I think Marcus falls into this. I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. I feel like in the offseason, Danny's got to at least sniff around and see what a Marcus Smart, Rob Williams package can get you. I don't know. For me, I think that's those are the two assets to me that I think hold true value. Plus, you know, our first round pick is going to be, what, 16, I think, or 17 this year. So, you know, between those three, I think it's at least, you know, because I'm not actually fully opposed to running it back because I do think this year was so fluky and that we've never had our top seven or eight together for even one game, which is just insanity. But I do think there is something to it, especially where, you know, Lob and Smart have decisions coming up on them. So you add that within, like, the kicker of that first-round pick, and you at least see what's out there. But I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be in a rush to do that, but I think you got to at least kick the tires and, and see what you can find out there for what that value is. Yeah, you you have a little bit more time on Rob just because he's restricted, right? So your hope is that you can give him a, find a way to have a, a team-friendly extension early this summer. You know, maybe you go to Rob and you say, listen, like you can play the year out, bet on yourself, enter restricted free agency, and maybe you get a big offer sheet. Or here's three years, $30 million, you get your guaranteed money, and you don't – like what if he hits – what if he – you know, messes up his hip or hasn't, he hasn't really been, you know, you know, the most, you know, stable guy (laughs) injury wise. Right. So, you know, but even if you don't, you can match any offer that he gets on the open market with smart. It's, you don't have that luxury, but I also think his value to you is higher than his value to other teams in the league. So you look around the teams that have, potential cap space to spend money on him next summer. It's intriguing. Like there's teams like Dallas, like where he's from that will need point guard help with Jalen Brunson being up and Josh Richardson being up. So they could be a factor, but you just wonder like our team's going to say, no, we actually think his defense is declining. He's still a league average at best three point shooter. Like maybe his value. Like I remember when he, Hit the market the first time, we all thought he was going to get $17, $18 million a year. That, that number wasn't out there. He ends up coming back for what, 12, 13 million? Well, now he's three years older and there hasn't really been that improvement, that drastic improvement as a shooter. And his defense took a dip. So it's like, 
is his price now 10 million? Is there someone that's going to be crazy that thinks he could be the missing piece and offers him that 18 that we thought he was going to get the first time around? I just, I just think he's more important to how you play than he is to a team that's looking to spend big money on a, on this round. He's a reserve point guard. That's the hardest thing, right? Because we see him from a, a an insurance policy type of view for Celtics, and we see him affect changing games on so many different levels, both good and bad. I mean, there's some frustrating mm-hmm. games. And you, it does skew what you kind of envisioned the value to be, because I'm sitting here thinking anything between 18 and 22 million sounds completely reasonable, but then I'm also not going to be shocked if no offer sheets above 11 million come in for him. And it's just such a disparity. Yeah. It's just, and then you look around some of the, like, you know, you look around some of the other guards and what they're making. It's like, it's all over the map, you know? Like, he's not Drew Holiday. He's not getting four years max money. But, like, he's probably, is he, like, what's Lonzo Ball's market? He makes, what, seven, eight million a year? He's a defensive pass-first point guard who can't really shoot. But he's younger, so, like, is I don't think Smart's a seven million dollar player. So it's yeah. it, at the same time, it just depends on what teams have money to spend that have that position of need. So if if you're a team that has a position of need at guard and you feel like you're right on the cusp, like maybe you are willing to overspend for someone like Smart. Um, I just think when it comes to like Celtic fans and Smart, he for me is like the new Hayward. Right, like when Hayward was on this team, everything was his fault. They got to get rid of him. They won't miss him. Blah blah blah. Well, like, look what happened. Like, they very clearly missed what Gordon Hayward brought. So I think the answer is always like, oh, we got to get rid of this guy. We got to trade him. Well, it's like you can't complain about how all this talent is going out the door, and then on the other end, be like, we got to get rid of all the talent that has a larger body of work of success, just because you know, it's been a season from hell. So that is always like, I just can't ever follow that train of thought. Yeah, he's a he's a roller coaster of a player and the fans' emotions with him kind of ride that wave of just the ups and downs that go with it. And so with Marcus, you know, he's, he's a fan favorite. So I feel like it, it, with that then itself, it gets back to your point of like, is he more valuable to you? Because I feel like when he was out earlier in the year, he was what was missing. It did, didn't, didn't, I mean, it kind of proved to be true, but also kind of didn't. Like, we still ended up at 500. Like, mm-hmm. it didn't actually change a ton. So, I think he's fascinating from the assessing his value standpoint. And then when you add in Fournier, Fournier's kind of in that same bucket, bringing this full circle. Do either of you guys have any idea what his – I have no idea no. what his value is going to be on the open market. And, you know, like you said, Dan, it takes one team. It takes one team, but, like mm-hmm. – I personally, as a Celtics fan, like I like Fournier. I like the fit. All the re- we've already talked about all the reasons why. I don't really want to pay him twenty million, if I'm being honest. But I think he's more than an eleven million dollar player. But does that mean I'm only okay at fifteen? Like I have, no, I don't know. And I think the way, and it, I don't even have any like justification for why I think this way. But I would, I would feel more comfortable overpaying for Smart than I would for Fournier. I don't know why. why. Even you though I think why. Fournier okay. checks more boxes of like, especially if Neesmith, is, his defense is going to be legitimate and he can shoot, like, you could see a path to fulfilling that smart, like, that role. But I just feel like 
this is a huge playoff series or playoff run for Fournier because, like, he is not a good career playoff performer. It's he bad. has not really shot the ball well from the floor through two games. And you're probably only going to get four games, maybe five max, to, like, make that decision. And you didn't really get to see him all that much in the post-trade deadline because he was out with COVID and then he was coming back from COVID. So it's like you have to make a decision sort of blind of, like, what is his market? If his market comes back, is it like, are you are you comfortable paying 18, 20 million to a guy where you don't know if that's someone who can get you over the hump? Because the first playoff run you have with him, you play a super team. So it's it's tough. Do you know what's interesting me while we were all talking about trade options and contract options and everything? I was I don't know if either of you two listened to it. I was listening to All the Smoke earlier today and it was um like their playoff preview, I was a few days late. Kent Perk was on there, and that Perk was talking about Portland as a team that's most likely going to be blowing it up if they don't make a decent run this year. And the fact when you start thinking about who holds more value and how valuable Marcus Smart is to the Celtics, wouldn't a team like Portland value that as well in terms of a trade discussion due to the fact that Marcus Smart also brings you a culture reset and changes the dynamic of the way that roster construction can happen you now have that vocal veteran that's going to be your emotional Draymond Green type leader from the from the jump I think that's what teams are going to value Marcus Smart are teams entering rebuilds because of how competitive he's going to force you to be from the jump yeah if they if they blow it up and let's say they they trade CJ McCollum and they need guard help I think I think they're an option it's just there's so much unknown between obviously now and when he actually hits the market the issue is they need to make a decision like this summer because let's say they hold off and they decide we want to improve around the edges. We want to bring it back with slight improvements and then we'll see what it's like to start the year up until the trade deadline, right? Well, let's say, you know, the the trade deadline rolls around, the Celts are back to being a top three or four seed. Everything looks great. Okay, now you just have to worry of like him leaving for nothing. If it's the same we just saw before this trade deadline, and you're like, okay, he's not making a difference, and you try to trade him, well, now you're accepting 50 cents on the dollar because everybody will know they can just pay for him in free agency when he hits the market that summer. So it's sort of like a game of chicken to where you either need a commitment from him that he's going to stay long term, or you need to just roll the dice and hope that. You know, he's not going to leave for nothing if the team succeeds. Because the one thing you don't want to do is, like, I just feel like they want to see what it looks like when their top seven is actually available to play. So I'm not going to fault them for not blowing up a portion of that top seven without ever seeing it. Because how do you know until they actually are on the court or active for a game together? Yeah, I think, honestly, this might be Danny Ainge's toughest offseason that I think he's had to go through in the sense of the expectations – Versus the reality of what you can actually do. You know, we're so limited. Free agents, pretty much out the window. You know, depending on maybe there's a little bit of that flexibility with sign and trade with with Fournier. But really, it's, you know, if you re-sign Fournier, then it just comes down to the trade market, what you draft. Like, you know, we, we we can go through this entire roster, talk about what it needs, how we upgrade it. The reality is there's only a handful of ways to be able to do it. And, you know, I think about, like, a, like Adam, you brought the ta- uh, the Blazers, the Taylors. You brought up the Blazers specifically. Name and, the team after me, bro. I'm yeah, there you go. The Portland, the, Port, the Portland Taylors. 
I'm getting rid of all of his guards. <laughs> but no, it seemed like Portland, I think, is fast because I've thought about that as a Marcus Smart landing spot, theoretically. But where they just made that move with Trent for Powell, they're very, you know, they would have to make some other moves, I think, to open it up for that Marcus Smart shape because right now they have kind of three undersized combo guards. And so putting, yeah, putting Marcus Smart in there doesn't make a ton of sense. If they make another move, I, you and I have talked about this, Adam. One of the things, uh, Greeny, that, that Adam and I really would like to see on this team, and it's going to be really difficult to do, is one of those type of, like, not unicorn centers, because those are just, like, really hard to get. You know, they, they cost a ton of money, and they're super mm-hmm. talented. But, like, one of those tier two level guys. And so, like, a Nurkic, a Valanciunas, we kind of made an attempt at Vucevic. So with that Blazers idea, I'm a little bit intrigued by maybe, you know, I talked about what does a Marcus and a Rob Williams package maybe get you maybe floating something like that for a Nurkic who has his own injury concerns to go along with you know lobs so maybe you're trading one problem for another but I think something along those lines is what is a potential avenue for the Celtics to improve but like I said I think this is going to be Danny Ainge's toughest offseason to actually make real change and why like you're pointing to Greeny here some of the signs if we re-sign Fournier might just be running it back now, let me throw a team out here. I'm just going to look up something real quick. Okay. I love we haven't even mentioned it, but maybe we should be. <clears throat> what about a team like the Knicks? Derrick Rose is expiring after this year. They don't. They basically can't play Alfred Payton, and they're going to have all the cap space in the world these next two years. Tibbs is a defensive-minded coach. He fits that, like, yeah. how they play. I don't know. It's something to consider. No, right? They, like, they, they, they came top of mind when you brought time. it up. Yeah, you know, like if you think of, for teams that want to establish culture, are defensive first, and tend to overachieve for to find their success. Like, isn't that the Marcus Smart blueprint? Like, that to me is like, like that's a worst case scenario. Like, if he goes to the West Coast, like, okay, great, you got your money. Like, I'll see you once twice a year. He's now in your division. I just think that's – I mean, that's – to have to lose Kyrie to Brooklyn and then, and then Smart to the Knicks would just be – I mean, talk about being down bad. That's just – I can't even imagine that. I wonder who would be in that package to come back. That would be what intrigued me. What, is, what the pitch would be? I mean, just – Yeah. I mean, he is the longest tenure. So I, I mean, we, we may not even – he may have to sell them on like, hey, I want to be back. I want to come back. You know, oh, like, no, I mean, from from New York in a trade, what would come back from New York? Oh, I don't even think you. I mean, I don't even know what you could even bring back from. Maybe Mitchell Robinson, but like he's yeah, it's not going to work. It's another Rob Williams. Who knows with the injuries? What you know? It's but that's Rob what I mean. That's as well, that's the worst thing about it. But that's what I mean. That's why I think like anybody who's going to trade for Smart this summer has to understand he only has that final year left, and yep. then he's going to hit the market. I'm thinking of. If Smart does hit the market, and let's say he's on the Celtics, but he hits the market next summer, who are the teams that are going to be able to pay him a lot of money with a need? New York. It's teams like Dallas and the Knicks that have that positional need with a ton of money who are on teams that are on the up and up, right? Like you wouldn't want to just ride, you know, hitch to the Luca bandwagon and let him just carry you, or you wouldn't want to play for the resurgent Knicks the same way you were a, a – a mainstay in the resurgent Celtics during the Isaiah years. It's just, if they don't reach an extension within this summer, like, I just don't know what's going to happen. 
switching players, but similar topic. Let me ask you this, Greeny. How would you feel? How do you feel? And you kind of touched on this earlier. When it comes to Lob Williams, are you going to feel better letting letting the situation play out and then just dealing with you know him being a restricted free agent, or do you feel better like you mentioned earlier, trying to ink him up this summer for? Three I mean, years, thirty million. Yeah, I, I don't mean, know what it costs, but yeah, there's, there's an inherent risk with it. So yeah, I want that early extension, okay. just because it just limits you to potentially have to overextend on an offer sheet. Because again, like there could just be one team that doesn't even want them, but just throws out an offer sheet to mess up your cap moving forward. So I just and Tatum loves to play with him, so it's more about keeping Tatum happy, right? Like you need to do whatever you can to keep the guys around that your franchise cornerstone players like to play with. I just hope that he and his agent would be willing to say, we understand there's an injury risk. Like Christian Wood just got 12 million a year and he's better than, than Rob Williams. Like that's just a fact. So if you can lock him up for three for 30, or maybe it's like a three plus one where it's like, you know, four years for 40 something, but only three are guaranteed and there's like games played incentives, like find a way to make it work. But my dream scenario and what I think is their biggest offseason priority is finding a way to get him on a team friendly extension, just like they did with Jalen, just like they did with, um, with, uh, with Avery before him. Smart was on, was a team friendly second contract. Like there is a history of them being able to do it. They've really only paid full price for Tatum. Kemba, you know, the max free agents, the sort of role player guys, they found a way to, to get them more at the market value. Do you know, I'm amazed we've gone 35-ish minutes without going into the Kemba Walker discussion. <laughs> I was just thinking that. <laughs> I, I'm amazed. I'm really, I'm really proud of all of us. I think we've all done a fantastic job avoiding it to this point. Uh, usually, you know, we run 30, 45 minutes-ish. So we have to get it in, otherwise we're all going to catch some heat online tomorrow or yeah. today when this releases. Take it away, Greeny. What's your Kemba? My, you you said you feel like Smart's been getting the Hayward treatment this year. I've it's, been saying that about Kemba this you year. You could be. Yeah, it's, it's fair. I just – it's weird, man. I just think his – I don't consider Kemba the albatross and the negative that other people do, mostly because at his – with – 100% health and in his normal, you know, when he's playing a normal stretch, I think he's fine. I think he gives them exactly what they need as a third option scorer. The issue is, what's the plan going to be moving forward for the rest of his contract? Because I think this year, their plan was like, listen, if we hold him out, we'll fall where we fall, we'll be healthy in the playoffs, and that's all that matters. Well, we learned that that strategy does not really work because this team can't stay healthy. And those three or four losses that you had that you probably win if he plays on a back-to-back against a bad team was the difference between a top-five seed and playing Brooklyn. So that's my first question is, is this going to be – is his load management plan how it is forever? Because that's a problem. At the same time, we're learning that, like, these undersized point guards sometimes get exposed in the playoffs. Happened with Isaiah. It's happening with Kemba. If you're not going to be able to be at full strength, like if you're not going to have both the Jays active and, you know, you can run out lineups where you don't have to rely. Like he's now the most second most important scorer on your roster, but he's an inefficient scorer. Like 
that's who he's been his whole career. He's a microwave type player where he can get hot, but then there are going to be valleys where he can't throw a pee in the ocean. And the issue is, is like you're committed big salary to him. You probably can't move him because other teams are seeing what you're seeing him. So it's like at his peak, when he is the Kemba that we have seen him be, he's a perfect third star. He doesn't care about the Jays being the first two on the pecking order. He can carry you offensively for stretches. But knee injuries are degenerative, and you never know what you're going to get. So they kind of have him – it's like you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. You know what I mean? It's like your eggs are in that basket, and I feel like they're just going to have to play it out. And when he's off the books, it's like, all right, that was it. And then you just have to hope that you can recover and you don't have to worry about the Jays then – you know, looking elsewhere, but I just, you're not going to be able to get off of his contract. So you have to just make the best of it. But I just, he's such a polarizing player because when he's locked in and he's giving you what you need, it's the offense looks great and things are flowing. But I just think we've learned this plan of undersized for first point guards hasn't really worked out. Yeah, I mean, you nailed it right there. Between a rock and a hard place. Like, what do you do here? You nailed damned if you do, damned if you don't. You know, we talked about the TPE was the golden ticket of, like, podcast topic and conversation. Kemba Walker trade rumors will probably play that role over this over this offseason with just, you know, myriads of, of fake trades coming in through the trade machine and everything. But I think ultimately you're right. You're probably going to have to run it back because for all the reasons you listed out, who's out there saying – an overpriced 30-plus-year-old with bad knees is the missing piece to our championship that we're willing to take this on. And I think the only real option to move off it is going to be similar to what Philly did with Al Horford, trading him to the Thunder, where they surrender a first-round pick, take back, you know, uh, a similar, you know, just make the contracts match. Luckily, they, they, they did find a way, which I thought was, you know, very smart of them to get a guy, Danny Green, that fits their system better. But he's on an expiring, comes up, they give up the first-round pick. But ultimately, talent-wise, they lose that trade. You know, Al Horford in a vacuum is a better player. Danny Green's a better fit. So for Kemba, you would have to do something similar. And to all the other points you made, I don't think Kemba's the main issue. Because when he's firing, you can go look at the numbers. When Kemba's firing on all cylinders, this team has a different ceiling. You know, I think it's him and Rob Williams that shift dramatically the ceiling of where this team is. Rob Williams, if he's available and if he's starting. Kemba, if he's playing well. If those two things are happening, this team is dramatically different so I think ultimately, even though fans are going to want to see how do we move on from Kemba, how do we change Kemba, I don't think it's probably going to be a realistic proposition. Unless you're cool with you think he's that much of a detriment that you're willing to take a loss in a trade, and I'm personally not there yet. And I also think, honestly, the quality of his season, the narrative around it doesn't really support like what actually happened. Like He was really bad those first 10 games. And people talk about Kemba's full body of work this season like it was that 10 games. If you look at his last 32 games that he's played, the whole season, he was the exact same player that we saw last year that started an all-star game. You know, 20 and 6, you know, low 40, like 42, 43% shooting. Like, he was the same Kemba we saw last year. So – that's part of the issue also is because he got off to such a slow start, that just became like, oh, that this is who Kemba is. When his larger body of work, the production-wise, was fine. Like, 
people who get mad that one night he has 30 and the next night he goes five of 16, like you just never watched Kemba Walker play before this season. That's just who he is. The issue is when you combine that up and down with the fact that guys are in and out of the lineup or he has to sit the back-to-back, like that's where it became the issue. But if you're telling me that he's not going to have to sit back-to-backs next year, like your best option is to have him as, you know, your third guy. I mean, my biggest takeaway from the entire season as a whole, looking at not just Kemba's body of work, but the entire rotation's body of work, they sorely need another shot creator, another guy mm-hmm. that's going to play make and create for others. I think that Kemba can get his own shot, but I don't see him as a guy that's really distributing the ruck around. He's not somebody I'd classify as a, a playmaking guard. He's definitely score first. I think your best option in most of Brad Stevens' offense over the last three or four years has been for a big man playing at a t- above the break, like Rob or Horford in that delay. And that's been where I felt, felt like Everybody's looking at Kemba Walker. They're looking at the inconsistencies in points scored. But for me, the biggest flaw towards him is the lack of his ability to raise everybody else's floor. And if you're a third star with streaky scoring, you need that ability to help uplift other guys by using playmaking skills and understanding your scoring gravity. And I just feel like that's where he's been lacking the most. And I'm a Kemba well, but guy. Let me, but- ask you, let me ask you this. Couldn't you, to play devil's advocate, couldn't you say that the two years that he's been the starting point guard of this team, we've seen both Jalen and Tatum both elevate and develop and take leaps in their game. So it's like yeah, I think that's necessitized though, right? Because he can't because Kemba's not distributing, that's why Tatum's being given those playmaking um sorry, those playmaking roles in the first place, because Kemba Walker cannot do that. So he's elevating guys due to his lack of that skill set, but I don't think he's elevating them from his play on the floor. Okay. I would just think that, like, I would just be hesitant knowing what we've seen when they don't have that. Now, listen, if you're telling me Fournier is going to come back and be that third, you know, option shooter, fine. If he's gone, I just can't, I just can't see them being a better team if they get rid of Kemba and bring in, just for our name, right, like Lonzo Ball, right, someone who's a, a defensive-minded pass-first point guard. We're seeing right now how brutal this offense is when the Jays don't have a legit scoring option as that third wheel. If yeah. you make smart your starting point guard or you bring in another starting point guard who really isn't an elite shot like creator by himself and then or score by himself – this offense isn't going to work because people are just going to ignore, you know, their guy and put all their attention on smart. The thing with Kemba is he's fairly decent as a spot up shooter. You have to worry about him as a scorer. I think the same was true when we had Isaiah and the same was true when we had Kyrie. Neither of those guys were pass first, create shot creating for other point guards, but for the, for Brad's system for work to work and for those guys to thrive, you need that number three shooter. Now, if, if you're going to tell me that's Fournier, like, fine, okay. Like, I can then, you know, be okay with the idea of having a more pass-dominant point guard. But if Fournier is gone, I just don't think there are enough legitimate scores on this team to where, like, nobody's going to come in and just average, like, 11 or 12 assists and the mm-hmm. offense is going to hum. 
You know what I mean? Because people are just going to double Kemba, or they're going to double Jason. They're going to yeah. sag in off shooters to take away driving lanes. So I'm I'm nervous about that because like I would rather have a score first player like Kemba and have two playmakers like Fournier and Smart than not have that and just have a point guard. Because oftentimes I just figure people assume like the the Jays are only going to get better if someone is giving them a ton of assists. Like that's not necessarily true. The gravity of the players around them and how they force defenses to guard them and pay attention to them is what is going to elevate everybody else on the floor. And that's why I think we're seeing not having Daniel Tice and having to play guys like Rob and Tristan, two bigs who do not stretch the floor, is an issue. So See, I agree uh, there. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think this is kind of circling back to one of the other points that we made is this is a reason why they might run it back if they re-sign Fournier. And because if you really think about it, I don't have the numbers in front of me. Kemba, Fournier, Smart, in the Jays, how many games did they all play together? I, mean, I don't think five. they were active for a single. For a That's single what I'm game. saying. I, I don't know. It's it's you can count. You need less than one hand. You know what I'm saying? Like you're not going to need. Like you're going to get to that number pretty quickly. And so I think that talks to a lot of those points. The one thing that I will push back a little bit with Lob not being, you know, a threat from the outside, is that I think his his threat as a as being a vertical threat is also something that that changes the dynamics. And so if you have him plus four out of those five other names that we keep talking about. I think that can be weaponized as well, especially when if he is at the top of the key, like Adam mentioned, you know, he's kind of that point center that keeps the ball moving. So I think there are ways to make that work, but it all comes back to we didn't have a chance to see that. So, so we don't really have the, you know, the empirical evidence to say, yes, that works. It's just like this whole season. This whole season for me was theoretically a lot Mm -hmm. of things should have gone differently. They just didn't. Yeah. And I just think that's why for people that, are so adamant that they need major roster blow-ups or whatever based on this season. I just, I can't understand that because we had a larger sample of this core last year and they look pretty good. Then you have this season where you had zero sample of the core and yet that tells you that the core needs to change. Like, I think there are other avenues you can do to improve the roster before you start talking about peeling back major pieces. And I think you have to exercise all of those options before you do something. Again, barring someone, you know, barring there being a trade that like blows you away where you just straight up have to make it. I just think if you are able to, you know, see what it looks like consistently with the additions of Fournier, with your improved, like, our fringe improvements around the edges this year did not work out. You know, the Tristan Thompson addition didn't work out. Jeff Teague was a disaster. You know, the draft picks are rookies, so they're going to take, you know, time to get acclimated. The second-year guys didn't take a second-year leap. So it's like those are things I would rather improve on than start talking about trading Kemba or peeling off smart because – I just need to see it. I need to see Ainge's plan. And if if you just have a situation where you have another year and you're injured and that's just how it was, then like that's just that's just the reality. But I just think you can't not do something because you're afraid that guys will get injured. That just doesn't make sense. I think that kind of 
wraps us up really well. I will say that I agree that Kemba shouldn't be traded because you're not going to get back fair value. But I would very, 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 very much like the team to go and add an extra initiator. And if they don't want to do that, I'll settle for Kelly Olynyk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listen, I just maybe I always have love for him for what he did for me in Game Seven. Uh, yeah. I'm glad that they won't have to. You know, they weren't the ones that gave him 50 million. Um, but his skill set is needed. Bring him off the bench as a stretch big, like I wouldn't hate it. I would much rather see that than than I don't know. I mean, like Jabari Parker. I mean, I hey man, maybe maybe we get him for the right value now. Now it's not 15, yeah. It's probably not 15 million anymore. So exactly. maybe like five, six, seven. I don't know what it is, but you know, something more palatable. Yeah, get honestly, I wouldn't even. Like Jay Crowder wants to come back somehow. Like, okay, <laughs> Let's bring it back. Let's run it. The gang reunites. Okay, yeah, it's like, back give, on the me, floor. give me like if that's the heart and soul of the team we needed. Let's bring back that heart and soul with the new talent that we've gotten since then. And like now we've answered every question that they have. <laughs> right, Dan. Do you want to let everybody know where? Well, I guess they already all know where to find you. But just in case some people live under a rock. Yeah, I mean, uh, on Twitter, at StoolGreeny, Barstool Sports every day. Um, even, you know, hopefully if the Celtics don't make a, a deep run, which I'm, I'm still holding out hope somehow, uh, I'll be there anyways every day. So certainly appreciate anybody who clicks on the blogs, interacts on Twitter, tells me what an idiot I am, you know, all that good stuff. So, <laughs> As usual, you can find me and Will, uh, the – Links to our socials will be hyperlinks. Well, I'd rarely let you close us out, man. So why don't you close this one out? <laughs> appreciate it, man. That's a, that's, that's a high honor to put on me here. Greeny, we uh, appreciate you coming on here, man. Uh, it was fun having this chat. I think we kind of have solved everything. So if Danny Ainge wants to listen, you, listen. you know, yeah, I mean, free, we laid out the plan. <laughs> you know, free of charge, right? Yeah, maybe, maybe we'll send them a small bill. We'll send them a small bill for some Dunkin' Donuts or something, a couple <laughs> gift cards, you know. But, uh, yeah, no, this has been fun, man. Always enjoy job jumping on here, Selfish Blog Podcast. Come follow me and Adam. We'll be here every Friday. Adam will come back at you on Monday, and uh, that's going to do it, man. All right, man. Appreciate you guys. Have a great weekend. You too, man. Disrespecting you hate is I ain't sweating your opinion. Y'all been testing my patience, never did it for a check. I've been impressed with the famous, just rather be creative than stressing my wages. Ageless every time I lay a verse down, one play at a time, keep it moving like a first down. And at the end of the day, I can say that I made this. MJ never made it to the major, still he chased greatness, expected that he might fail, and I might too. I might never get to pop champagne, celebrating with the crew. This ain't everything I am, it's so.